And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's the Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of the Rodcast, David Steele. Say hey, Larry Babb. Hey, Larry Babb. Thank you for that fine, fine introduction. As usual, yes, my name is David Steele. You are listening to the Rodcast brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. And we are back. Uh, we are back and we're very happy to be. It's a new year. We're ready to deliver a whole new batch of great episodes. So please continue to tune in. Continue to tell a friend. And we'll continue to try and deliver different slices of history and personalities from the world of hot rodding. Now, because we've been off the air for a little while, it almost seems appropriate to me that the first episode back after our break be such a substantial one. Again, it is for me anyway, because our guest, Tommy Sparks, is not only one of our great early hot rod pioneers, and a hero to many, but I would say without question, he was one of the most important people I probably ever had enter my life. Tommy was a great friend and a mentor to me for, I guess, a little over 15 years. And, you know, that friendship grew to the point where Tom, you know, basically became like a second father. Uh, To say he was generous uh, would be an understatement. And the story around how I met him, I think, more than proves that. Uh, This would be back in uh, 1995. I was playing guitar for for one of our truly great songwriters, I'm I'm lucky enough to say, uh, a guy named John Prine, who I couldn't possibly recommend more. And uh, we were on tour, and we were heading to L.A. to, of all things play on the tonight show and you would think that to a 25 year old guy this would be plenty to occupy the mind (laughs) but uh but apparently i was just as sick with hot rodding then as i am now because uh about a month before we were to play that show i approached john's management and i asked if i could head out to LA a day early and they don't really like guys straying from the herd. I mean, it's, it's a, it's just a safe play, you you know, to see that everyone travels together and, you know, that way they know where everyone is and the machine will kind of run on time. So knowing that it surprises me to this day that they didn't, they just didn't bat an eye at this. And they, they just said, Hey, be at the hotel by the morning of the show. And meet the bus. And that was that. So now what did I want with an extra day in LA? You might ask. Well, the truth is I had not been there since I was seven years old or so on a family vacation and had since buried myself in all of these old books that described early hot rodding and racing and had basically become crazy about it all. 
And uh, it was around this time that the Don Montgomery books had been published. The the great, great Dean Batchelor book, The American Hot Rod, had just come out. And that really kind of sent me over the edge. I mean, now I not only wanted to know everything about the dawn of hot rodding, but I also wanted to see where it all happened. The the dry lakes, the speed shops, the the diners and burger stands and the street race spots these guys would go to after choosing each other off at these little eateries. Um, I mean, all of it. I wanted to see it all, and this was the only thing on my mind when I realized we were going to California. Well, that and playing The Tonight Show, of course, but I'm just telling the truth. This is this is how preoccupied I was about this, and I could not wait to get out there with my free day and see all of this laid out before me. So off I went with my uh, Dean Bachelor book in hand and a, a yellow legal pad that I'd uh, drawn a map on showing where all these historic spots were that were talked about in this book. And the and I'd plotted this out so that I could start out in the San Fernando Valley, see the street racing spot that was so popular out on uh, North Sepulveda Boulevard. And then I'd hit a few of the speed shops and then onto these meeting places and maybe even uh, grab a burger in the process. And uh, I mean, you can't imagine how excited I was to see all this. And by now, anyone following along who knows anything about Southern California will know the disappointment that I had set myself up for. I followed my map and drove out into the valley. And as the area I was supposed to be seeing pretty soon, you know, a rural two lane road with farm fields on either side, uh, continued to not appear, I started to realize my mistake. And uh, I can distinctly remember sitting uh, at a stoplight in my rental car and feeling uh, just about as foolish as, uh, as one can. Um, I mean, how could I not have known that this uh, would be the case? What was, what was I thinking? <laughs> I mean, I was reading about this stuff that had happened 60 years prior, and somehow I thought I could just drive out and see it all. I mean, I, I really thought it would all still be there. So it uh, it definitely wasn't, and it was a whole lot more like what it is now. Uh, strip malls and apartment buildings and more strip malls and apartment buildings. So... Um, so, you know, when I did find properties that still existed, like uh, where Watson had had his shop or where the old SoCal speed shop had been, you know, I could see that the building was the same building as the, the one in the grainy black and white photo in the book. But not only were those businesses gone, but they were replaced with things like real estate offices and pawn shops. So, um, yeah, you can imagine how foolish I felt. So... But now, you know, in my defense, this was years before the internet. Uh, so it wasn't like I could just look all this up in seconds. I had my history books and my map. And this this was going to take me to some hot rod history. And, uh, well, it didn't. Not immediately anyway. So after the, the reality of all this sunk in, 
the only thing I could think to do to salvage this extra day and the expense of it was to just be a tourist and go into Hollywood and see some sights. So that's what I did. I, I drove over the hills and simply went to the most recognizable place that I could think of, the Paramount Studios lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I'd seen it a million times in movies and on TV and, you know, maybe they have a tour or something and that would occupy me for some of the day. And so with that, I soon found myself coming down Melrose Avenue toward the Paramount lot. And uh, I suddenly spot some interesting cars in front of a shop there on the right side or I guess south side of, of Melrose. Nothing crazy, just some muscle cars, a couple of street rods, but, you know, cool looking cars all the same. And so I just wheeled in to check it out. And uh, luckily for this naive 25 year old, a very nice guy came walking out, asks if he can help me. And I, you know, I just said I spotted the cars and thought I'd check them out. Amazingly, he was completely cool with that and told me if I had any questions, he'd be in the office. And so, you know, I look over these roadrunners and GTOs and uh, what I remember actually to be a really clean and pretty traditional uh, black 40 Ford coupe. And uh, then I thought it was probably about time to leave. So I step into the doorway of this guy's office and thank him for letting me check out his cars. And I remember uh, he said uh, that uh, that's okay, man. They're not mine. They're, they're customer cars. But, you know, I said, thanks either way. And then he asked me where I was from. And uh, I guess I had the stink of a tourist on me by this time and uh, told him I was in town from Nashville. And of course, he immediately asks if I'm a musician. I said I was and said I had a gig in town the next day. And um, so anyway, started to walk away. And then and this will forever be one of the most important second thoughts I've probably ever had in my life. I turned back and leaned into his office and I said I was trying to retrace some of the steps of early hot rodding and uh, did he have any advice for me on what I could, you know, may maybe do where I could go and, you know, to see what was left of it. And to my surprise, he immediately said that he still saw some of the original old guys around at different car events. Um, mentioned, you know, guys like Iski, Art Chrisman, Stu Hillborn, Ray Brown. I mean, some really cool guys. And I'm blown away that you know, he's just rattled off all these names that I'd been reading about over and over and these books that I had with me. Um, I mean, I, I had no way to know that these guys were even still alive. And now this guy's telling me that he still sees them hanging around. So I thought that was pretty cool. And now as all this is going on in my head, he says, uh, he says, you know, you should go down the street. There's a shop right down that road there, Gower. Now, Gower is a street that runs north and south along the, I guess, the west side of the Paramount Studio lot. And uh, in fact, it was practically right in front of the driveway of where I was standing. And my rental car was kind of already pointing in that direction. And uh, he says, yeah, there's a guy that works down there on Gower. And he's one of the old time hot rod guys like you're talking about, uh, Sparks. 
is his name. Tom Sparks. Yeah, it's his name. And uh, I just couldn't believe my ears. I mean, Tom Sparks. I, I knew this name. I knew who this guy was. If it was the same guy, there was a Tom Sparks that kept popping up in my brand spanking new Dean Bachelor book. And uh, he had really stuck out to me, you know, against incredibly strong competition. There are pictures of him with all kinds of different stuff. He's tuning a blown flathead in one photo and then another shot. He's uh, with a sports car special that he'd built. And, you know, he did everything from early dry lakes to stock cars that he'd run during the early days of Riverside and and this was a serious guy. And if he was the same Tom Sparks from the book, this was definitely a guy I needed to meet. So anyway, off I went, was heading down Gower Street looking for this shop. And suddenly I spot it. I mean, it definitely stood out, sandwiched between a couple of just kind of general business body shops was this small garage. Uh, there was a 56 Chevy convertible parked out front. Uh next to a Jag 120 that was in primer. And then, you know, kind of the true beacon that gave it all away. A beautiful blown flathead V8 mounted high up on an engine stand right inside the opening of the, the one bay that was open. A great big, beautiful blown flathead, like just sitting out in the open of this garage stall for everyone to see who's going by. Had six Strombergs mounted on top. It was painted a kind of reddish orange and just sparkled like a piece of jewelry, which it was. So anyway, I pull into the lot. I park my car. I approach the shop, uh, mostly just to get a better look at this engine. And as soon as I left the the sunlight of the lot and and walked into that open bay, I saw it. It was, it was all there. I mean, SCTA trophies mounted on the wall next to timing tags and other early hot rodding memorabilia. Just one trophy after another after another with all the great early track names on them like Saugus, Santa Ana, Pomona. I just, I could not believe it. I had actually just fallen ass backwards into the very hot rod history that I'd set out to find, but it all happened completely by chance. I, I no longer needed my silly little map or the, <clears throat> excuse me, notes from my books. I mean, it was all there and I'm just standing there looking at it in this dimly lit single bay shop on a noisy street right in the middle of Hollywood. I mean, I just could not believe my eyes. Any single artifact in that shop was worthy of a day-long study and research uh, just to hear the story behind it. Every little piece of history in that room contained this great little movie that was playing in my mind. And then I hear this voice coming from the side office and I looked in and there was a guy on the phone with his back to me sitting in an office chair. And it was only then that I started to think about what this guy Tom Sparks looked like in the Bachelor book. You know, I had this image of him in my mind leaning over a blown flathead that he had in a Willie's coupe, a Willie's uh, drag coupe. 
And I mean, you know, that was in the mid 50s. So it was like, here we go again. This is possibly a completely different guy now, uh, either figuratively or literally. I mean, even if he's the same guy from the book, that doesn't mean he's going to want to talk to some dude from Tennessee that happened to wander into his shop in the middle of a workday. And again, it may be a different Tom Sparks. So there I am standing in the middle of this miniature hot rod history museum when out he walks and asks, can I help you? And uh, there he was. I mean, that was the guy from the photo, no doubt about it. And th this was not one of those times when you have to, you know, kind of squint to see the young guy and the old man. Uh, I mean, it was him for sure. I mean, it was kind of startling, actually. He looked exactly the same, like exactly the same. And uh, could not believe it when I, funny, when I later learned that he was a champion level bike racer, lifelong vegetarian, never drank, uh, gave up smoking uh, just out of his teens. And by the way, was still riding his bike a couple hundred miles a week at the time I'd met him. This all made a lot more sense. But on this day, it was like having uh, a character from this book materialize, you know, right in front of me. And uh, I guess that's one of the reasons why our initial encounter got off to kind of a slow start. He, he asked me if I could um, or if he could help me. And I, I honestly didn't. I didn't have an answer. I, you know, I'd found this kind of grail-like cavern of hot rod history and didn't really know what to say. <laughs> uh, when I finally said I was researching the history of hot rodding, he immediately asked me what publication I worked for. And, uh, well, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't writing about this. I had no specific goal or agenda I was just doing it for my own curiosity. And after kind of stammering around for a while and watching him look more and more confused, I finally just said that. I, I just said, uh, I was just curious about early hot rodding. And uh, then I told him that I was sent here from the guy at the end of the street. And of course he knew him. And, uh, and then he just pointed to the engine on the stand and said, well, You'd probably like to see this then. This is the restored engine from the Tony Nancy 22 Jr. <laughs> Which blew my mind because I knew that car and just could not believe that. Yeah, there it was. Uh, he was right. I was definitely interested in seeing that. And uh, so it went. I mean, he began to show me around his shop. He... he uh, dropped little atomic bombs of, of one-line explanations for uh, each and every artifact he had on display. You know, just things like, uh, oh, this is the timing tag from my first run at the lakes, the first lakes meet after the war. Um, you know, little things like that. And I guess he could just see from, you know, how wide my eyes were that I could not get enough of this stuff. And the minutes turned into hours and before I think either of us knew it, he'd given up his entire afternoon to a total and complete stranger. A person uh, who could do nothing for him 
and who he really knew nothing about. And to this day, that continues to just blow me away. Uh, I mean, if someone ever needs to know how generous Tom Sparks was, this part of the story is really all you'd ever have to know. But that said, incredibly enough, it even got better because it was now the end of the day and he turns to me and asks what part of town I'm staying in. And I tell him the Hollywood Roosevelt. And he says, you know, that's like 15 or 20 minutes from my home. And might I like to come by his place that night and see his car collection? <laughs> um, I mean, really, who does this? Again, I'm a total stranger who just wanders in off the street. And um, but uh what he said next made it an offer I couldn't possibly turn down. No matter how much I felt like I'd already taken way too much of this guy's time, which of course I had. He then says, hey, if you come by tonight, you can see one of my first hot rods I ever built uh, when I was a kid. It's an old uh, Aviate Roadster. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure I can properly articulate this part of the story, but um, I know for sure that this was kind of the most awestruck I'd been to that point. And, and that's really saying something. I mean, I really couldn't believe my ears. An, an AV8 Roadster that was built in the 40s, and he still has it. I guess all I can say about this part of it is to express just how shocked I was to hear that a car from that era had survived. Um, I mean, I'd been poring over these books and had, I mean, it was like an, an obsession and I, I knew every page and had memorized the captions and I could put names to faces and people to cars. And, and now I'm standing here talking to one of these guys who was actually there. One of the guys who was standing in these photos 50 or 60 years earlier. And that math worked. I mean, a lot of these guys could potentially still be be alive, especially in 1995. But what had never, ever occurred to me, ever, never crossed my mind, never considered that any of those cars would still exist. I mean, those roadsters, at the time those photos were taken, late 30s, early and late 1940s, many of those cars look like they're months away from going to the scrapyard. <laughs> I mean, with some exceptions, but most of them are pretty beat up. The bodies have been removed and set on different chassis and sometimes in kind of makeshift ways. And again, I just, I couldn't believe my ears when, when he said this. So I think he probably saw the reaction on my face and, uh, he just, he wrote down his home address and said, come by around seven 30 and his wife, Laura will be there. And and uh, they can show me around. And so I did. And, and uh, that just, that led to one of the greatest, most inspiring and influential friendships that I'll, I'll probably ever have in my life. I mean, through Tom, I met countless hot rod heroes and pioneers, uh, some of whom are, are still around and are people I can call friends of mine. Um, I got to go on many car adventures and outings that I otherwise couldn't have experienced. And, you know, each one was a blast because of him. I mean, whether it was 
Pebble Beach or the Pasadena Roadster Club reliability runs or LA Roadster Club Father's Day weekend. They were all great. And, um, you know, yeah, I remember telling uh, musician friends of mine that it was going to these events with Tom was like going to the Grammys with Quincy Jones, you know. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I mean, it just went on and on. I, 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 I also got to build a, a flathead V8 alongside him and and see firsthand what the difference is between you know between like a standard engine rebuild and a true use of great talent and understanding both in you know the building and the science and attention to detail as well as the tuning i mean just amazing stuff um so I guess you can see why this this first installment of what we plan to be a multi-part series with Tom uh, is so close to my heart. Now, speaking of, understand that these recordings uh, were never made with broadcast in mind. This was something I wanted to do to capture Tom's story in any way that I could. And that meant the full picture of his life. I, you know, I had as much of a you know, a life and hot rotting focus for this as I had a focus on providing a document that could be saved for his family and future generations of it. It actually took me quite a while to even convince him to do it. And I think you'll hear that, you know, he, he's a little timid at times to even be talking about himself, but, uh, I'm so glad that he did agree to do it. And during the editing process of putting this episode together, I was really taken by the wide picture that he paints of what his life was like during the first 20 or so years and and how it really paints a, a, a truly down and dirty scene of, of what it looked like to live in that time and know things firsthand like major loss, uh, real deal poverty and the desperation that comes with that. And then, you know, the hard work and determination that it takes to pull oneself up and out of that. You know, this is a story that, that I'm lucky that I get to hear many versions of when interviewing pioneers for the foundation. But I gotta say, I'm, and I'm not trying to be biased, um, or hope I'm not being biased, but I think Tom takes you through that story that so many of his fellow hot rodders of that era experienced and takes you through it in a way that is even more impactful and powerful than usual. You know, it it really is a great American story and it continues to be fair to say, I think, uh, that these guys really were our greatest generation, even if they did have to get scrappy from time to time. As you will hear in this first episode with the late great legend and hot rod pioneer, my old pal, Tommy Sparks. 6626. In Stewart? No, I was actually born in a little town called Albia. It's not too far from Stewart. It's actually near the uh, race car museum. And near North, Knoxville? Yeah. Your father was a was a watch repairman or a jeweler. A jeweler. Hmm. Yeah, first rate jewelry store. Um, 
was prosperous, belonged to the country club and had a car and all that kind of stuff. But when the depression hit me, he just, it was just nothing. Hmm. Wiped him out. <coughs> and he looked around for a month trying to get a job and finally found a place in Iowa City. A little shop that he could rent. So we moved there for a year. That didn't work out good. Then he moved to Stewart. And that's all I remember that. I remember growing up in Stewart. It's a little little bitty town. Mm -hmm. uh, my mother died when I was three. Just after we'd moved to Stewart. And uh, my aunt, my father's sister had a place here in California and she had a job in a corset factory. She only had a house because she was married to a, a guy for several years and they got divorced and uh, she got the house. And she just rented that and come back to Stuart and took care of me from the time I was, I guess, a little over, probably three and a half till I was close to ten, nine or ten. And then she came out here together to earn enough money to send it to us in Stuart so we could get out here on the train. And hmm. That happened and we came out here in 1938. And how much older is your sister? Ten, uh, ten years. <clears throat> she's still alive, she's, isn't she? Yeah, she's still alive. So you were ten years old when you left? We took a train out here. Uh, the only train then that went that we could get in Stuart went to we had to go to San Francisco first. Went to San Francisco and then got another train down here. And friends of my aunt picked us up at the railroad station and uh, we came out here and moved in the or not moved in she was already there they just. I got a, I slept on a, a cot in the dining room and uh, my dad slept on the uh, front porch. One side of the porch was closed in and that's where he had his little shop and he slept there. I slept in the dining room and my sister slept in the one bedroom with my aunt. Hmm. That went on for some time like that. What you said your dad had a little shop on the front porch. He was still doing Well he hung a sign out, you know, watch repair. But he wasn't getting, uh, wasn't making any, you know, couldn't support us. <coughs> Even though my aunt was working. So he got a job as a janitor at Lockheed during the war. And, and worked at Lockheed for some time and got promoted up to the tool room. And so he worked there until he, he was too old to, do, to work anymore. Hmm. Which would have been when? Well, I was still... I had a hot rod. I used to have to take him to work sometimes when his regular guy didn't pick him up. Oh, 38, 39, 40. How many... He's probably there from 40 to 
the end of the war, from 40 to 45, I guess. So was your father quite a bit older? Yeah. When he had you? Well, yeah, yeah. My sister's adopted anyway, but yeah, he was, he was about my age when he died, you know, and I just thought he was, he must have been in his early 80s when he died. But, uh, real nice, soft-spoken guy. Yeah. Never raised a hand, never told me a thing. He just let me do as I want. <laughs> so he must have been in his 40s when he had you? Yes, at least, yeah, late 40s, I'd say. And how, was, how old was your mother when she passed away? She was younger than my father <clears throat> by maybe eight years or so, eight or ten years. She passed away in like 1933, probably. Huh. How'd she, how'd she die? They said she had gallstones, but there was no, no ho closest hospital was in Des Moines, which was 50 miles away. And mm. The local, two local doctors, I don't think, you know, either one of them knew too much, but that's what they said she had was gallstones, and I'm sure today she'd be in the hospital for a day or two and sent home and live a normal life, but uh, yeah. those days things were different. What do you remember about about arriving in California? What do I remember about it? Yeah, like what 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 do you think? Do you remember what it? Well, I, I remember Grand Central Station down here, and the ladies, the mother and two daughters, picked us up in a in a thirty six Chevrolet, which I thought was grand. And one of the daughter, daughters was a good looking gal. I remember. Looking at her, she must have been 25. But, uh, other than that, I don't know. It just it was entirely different than now. Los Angeles is a whole different world then. And in Stewart, the roads are still all dirt. Hmm. Uh, so the cars were all dirty, and they're probably older. Much older. Yeah. Um, There's no. We had we had electricity. But no outhouse, you know, I mean, no inside plumbing, just a, you know, a outhouse in the backyard. Hmm. And uh, the more wealthy people had inside plumbing, the more wealthy people had refrigerators or ice boxes. And I remember the, the ice was delivered by a horse and wagon. You in know, Stewart. I, in Stewart. Yeah. I'd jump up there and get little pieces of ice. Huh. We, we just had a cistern, you know, a big hole in the ground with some water in it and a lower bucket down there and keep milk and that kind of stuff cool. Hmm. We had no, no ice or refrigerator or anything. We didn't, I never had anything any better so it didn't uh, seem bad at all. Were you kind of out in the country? No, we were in town but it's a very small town. The town had one, one main street. A friend of mine just sent me a bunch of pictures of it. But there's just one street in the town, one main street. There's nothing exciting about the town, but it was... Never locked the door. Not, not too hot in the summer. You just throw a blanket out in the front yard and sleep out there. Hmm. Never any crime. Do you think you had any... Uh, do you remember having any kind of interest in cars or things mechanical when you were in Iowa? Do you think it started that early? Well, I know I didn't. In cars, I, we had a little library, and the main highway was Highway 6. 
and uh, it was just a two-lane highway but that's the only road that's the ones the buses come on and I'd sit on oh, this library had a bench in front and I'd sit there and try and memorize the cars that went by. Uh, I, I first thought that every car with a wind, wind wing was a Chevrolet and I didn't know that it was Chevrolet. I, I called them uh, uh, Cleve Roadster. Cleve Roadsters. I did that for months before someone clued me in that that's Chevrolet and how I got Cleve Roadster out of what a cursive Chevrolet. script of Chevrolet. I don't know, but anyway, yeah, I, but that's about all that, and and uh, there was a one of my friends had a Chevy dealership there. I'd go over there and look around with him, you know, when they were doing taking engines out and that type of thing. But that's about it. You're a pretty young guy to be go to be going to a. A shop and seeing. Well, that shop is still there. But no kidding. Yeah, it's still called Morrison Chevrolet. The son that I knew was my age, a year younger. Uh, he ran it for umpteen years, and he died here a bunch of years ago. But they kept the same name, and it was there the last time I was there. I walked through. I was glad I got out of there when I did. <laughs> well, it's certainly a good time to move to California. It was. The perfect time for California. It's just as far as cars go, there's plenty of interest in cars, and uh, I got in some bad guys that you know that were really into cars that did some pretty raunchy things. You know, as far as not stealing cars, but they'd break in at junkyards and steal what parts they needed and you know that kind of stuff. Were, were, would you say that some of the first friends you made when you moved to California were kind of a, a rougher crowd? Yes, the first friend I made was Fred Carrillo because he was my, my first day at school, at junior high school. Because you would have been in seventh grade, in right? In seventh grade. My aunt took me over there I'm, I'm dressed in just overalls, you know, the old bib-type overalls. Yeah. Every other kid was pretty respectable looking, you know, not many of them had bib overalls on, but anyway, the first kid I met was Fred Carrillo, who makes the wow. Carrillo rods now. <laughs> and uh, they had a model airplane building class, and we were both in that, and we built model airplanes together and flew them together. And then he bought a... In a year or two, he bought a 34 Chevrolet sedan. He brought it over to where my aunt's house was on Rosewood. He lived close by. And it was knocking something terrible. Neither one of us knew anything. We didn't know a half-inch wrench from a, from a 3 sixteenths inch wrench. Now, was he, he was your age? He yeah. is your age? Uh-huh, yeah. My age. So he got fact, a his birthday is one day after mine. Wow. Huh. And we were close friends for a whole bunch of years. So he brings this 34 Chevy over and it's knocking? And, and it's knocking and uh, I had a, we had a garage there, it was just an old wooden shed and it just had a dirt floor and you couldn't, it had no lights in it so we just did it in the backyard. 
We finally got <coughs> finally got it jacked up. We see the pan bowls. And we take the pan, drain the oil, we got that done, and start taking the pan bowls off. But it wouldn't come loose from the block. But when we finally discovered it's just a gasket hole in it, and then it dropped down about an inch because it was into the wishbone. And we didn't know what the hell to do there. Hmm. And I don't forget, it sat like that for probably a week, and somebody told us you had to drop, you had to drop the wishbone and jack the engine up in front. So we loosened the wishbone back at the cap, and it didn't move. Uh, we loosened, took the front motor mounts off, and got a jack under the under the pan and jacked the front up about, I guess, four inches and enough to pop the hoses and spray us with water and that kind of stuff. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> and cut some two or four blocks. So we got the front of the engine jacked up. But then we had to jack the wishbone down. You know, you just couldn't pull it down. So once we got the wishbone down and a block under it, then we could get the pan off. But then we didn't know what the hell we were looking for, you know. We undo the a connecting rod, you know, because it happened to be down and, you know, they were just Babbitt bearings. We didn't know what a Babbitt bearing, we didn't know anything. Hmm. And uh, we didn't know anybody. Well, maybe I guess that's about the time we met a guy named Jim Daly and Harry Abashian. Now, Harry Abashian was an Armenian guy that was pretty well known for his for hot rods. And he helped us a bit, and his brother Harach helped us a bit. All we did was put the pan back on, and I forget whether he sold the car or traded or whatever. We never fixed it, I know that. But where I learned, started to learn about cars was with this Harry Evasion. And he's a bad guy. I mean, he would steal or break in or do anything, you know. And we did that. I hung out with him for several months, him and, and Fred and myself and a couple other guys. We'd, so Fred was kind of a tough oh yeah, kid, but too. Fred, we both... We, and we take tires and that kind of stuff, and we stored them under my aunt's house because it had a, uh, a big inspection hole where you could almost walk through. It was so deep under there. And we stored tires, batteries, anything that we had stolen kept under there. And one night, we just brought some stuff in, and we come out, and a police car sitting in front of the house. And they flashed the light on us, and Come over here, boys. It was just the two of us. This was you and Fred? Me and Fred. Make a long story short, we ended up down at county jail. Well, don't don't make a long story short. <laughs> <laughs> they how did they had found the parts under the? Well, yeah, they come. They saw us coming out from this, and I guess different garages had been reported of thefts. Mm-hmm. And they went under. They went where they saw us coming out and flashed the light, and here's these. Tires and batteries and wheels and hmm. and stuff. And how old are you? Um, maybe fourteen. And 
we didn't hardly know what jail was, you know. We learned pretty quick. and. Uh, so they arrested you guys? Oh, yeah. We, I, we were both in jail for, I said, for uh, at, least, at least two weeks, probably three weeks. No kidding. We weren't, we weren't in the same cell. We were, we in cells by ourselves. Fred got in a fight, and I guess they had some guy in his cell for a while. They beat the shit out of him. Mm. And uh, Fred got beat up. Yeah. Mm. So that that didn't really take care of anything after that. I started. What did your family think of that? I mean, what did your dad? My, it just broke my aunt's heart. It just I can't believe. It. You know, this this didn't happen once or twice. It happened like four different times. Mm. I got arrested and, and put in these little jails for doing bad things. And each time, it just I just killed her by doing that. So anyway, yeah, it was extremely hard on her. Much more so than my dad, I think. But, you know, it got over. You know, I, it, I wasn't in there for a long time. I mean, in the meantime, my sister was working at the Bandy Camp's uh, bakery, which was a big, big bakery in those days. And uh, I had an allowance of 10 cents a week. And that was in junior high school. And most kids didn't have any allowance, so I, thanked my, I have to thank my sister for that. Hmm. Where, what was your junior high school? Virgil. Virgil? Junior high school. Still, it's still on the Vermont and First Street. And Rosewood was the street that you? That was the street that, that our house was on. That was about, a, I don't know, close to a two mile walk over to Virgil every day. So usually I'd just hitchhike over. Everybody hitchhiked in those days, and hitchhiked home. But your dad just didn't. He didn't, didn't quite know what to do. No, he just—he had never. He'd been a wonderful father, but he'd never been rough with me, cross with me, anything. He just whatever I wanted to do, I didn't tell him. I just do it. That wasn't the thing to do, but that's the way it was. If I was around. Fred and his Harry Abajan and, and Jim Daly, I mean, they were bad guys. They got me into all this trouble. And uh, I kept going with them anyway. And uh, not particularly Fred. Fred was about like me. Our big thing was building model airplanes and, and playing cars. See, I, I bought a, a Model A Ford in the neighborhood. I, first, I, had, I worked for a year delivering newspapers in the morning and selling a different newspaper on the, on the street at night. And Fred did basically the same thing. And uh, that's where we got our money for our first cars. My second car, actually, my first car is an old Model A Ford, uh, Harry Abajan. And he ran at the lakes, had a Fargo four-port. And then he had a Winfield overhead for a four-banger. Uh, so he ran before the war then? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Way, yeah, definitely before the war. Because when the, they opened up again here in 40, late 45, I was at 
uh, the MRIs, that was the first one that opened. The war that was just over, and they opened it up, and I, I had this, this monolay. I guess by that time I had jumped this one monolay. I had so much trouble with it, I kept breaking intake manifolds, and never heard of such a thing. Hmm. I know why now, because my fan belt was too long, and the manifold was up too high. Oh. It was aluminum manifold. Yeah. I'd go out to the junkyard and buy a manifold for two bucks. Hmm. I put it on. No one ever told me why I was breaking manifolds. So the pulley was so high it would just... I think the... the yes. It, it would just break the manifold, right? Hmm. Because of the leverage problem with that. Yeah. And, uh... Got rid of that car. Well, before you go into that, did you ever go to the lakes before the war with the Vagin? No, I didn't. First I knew about you... the lakes, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't know why. I think probably when I really actually decided I wanted to go, they were just about closing down. They shut. They shut. Actually. SCTA had been formed and they had got permission to run it Muroc. But they only ran there for like a year and they got shut down about two years before the war started. And so then what lakes was being run was run at El Mirage or Rosamond. And uh, I did run at those. I don't think I, I've been up to El Mirage. We ran there many times, uh, you know, in the 40s, late 40s after the war and in the early 50s. Back in the 50s, up through the, at least the mid to late 50s. But see, Bonneville was running then, but that was just once a year. So I'm going to back up sure. a little bit. So did you, so you didn't, and you didn't really back off those kind of activities? You kind of kept getting in trouble for a while. Yeah. In junior high. Yes. Yeah. And it was Saul with those that same same group. little group. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the one guy I was talking about it uh, got killed in the war. Abajian, I haven't. He. Who who was that that got killed? Uh, oh, I think it was name. I said it a few minutes ago. It'll come to me. But he had an. He had a nice 32. Yeah, we'd go down to, we went down to Tijuana half a dozen times. Always managed to get in a little trouble, but we were always able to get it the hell out of there before anything happened. And, uh, but my first car that really got me started was a 32 Ford three-window coupe. But now you had a car before that that you, Crashed right off the bat, right? No, that was a that was a thirty-two three-window coupe. That was a th okay. Yeah, okay. I didn't have I didn't have a driver's license yet, and I used to ride my bicycle everywhere. And I saw this car sitting on a used car lot on Santa Monica Boulevard. I went in and talked to them. They wanted one hundred and twenty-five for it. And I said, well, "What if I come out here?" with my sister's husband 
uh, who would give you a hundred for it. We'd just drive it off. Yeah. Well, bring him out here and let me talk to him. So Max took me out there and we bought the car for a hundred. I had about, I don't know, $75 I'd saved on the paper routes. We drove it home to where I was living with my aunt on Rosewood, and that's kind of a hilly street. And he parked it in front of the house. Now you've yet to drive a car in your I've life. I've never driven a car. Even in Iowa you never drove a tractor no, or anything? No, because my father didn't have a car. He bought this 32-3 window, which was a decent car. He parked it there and I sat in it for a while and figured the, the, the three gears and uh, how to start it. I knew that, you know, you had a clutch and I thought I could t easily teach myself. So I went up the street and got another friend named Alan Cheney. And we both got in the car and said, now if anything goes wrong, you just yank on this emergency brake. Well, I started it and put it low and I put it in some gear, got it away and got it going down the hill. And I pushed what I thought was pretty hard on the brake. There was a boulevard stop at the bottom. I could see I wasn't going to get stopped, so I started turning it. I turned right into a car coming down that street. I kind of hit like head on. A parked car? Yes, it was a parked car. But uh, it was parked on the other side of the street, you know, like it was moving, but it wasn't moving. And it didn't damage that car much, but my friend, it, he hit his head on the windshield and smashed the windshield and cut his head a bit and knocked a couple teeth out. And my aunt had to pay for that. She had to borrow the money somewhere. And uh, so I guess he didn't get his hands on the emergency brake in time. Uh, he did it. He didn't work. I yeah. don't know. Anyway, then the, the car had two completely smashed front fenders, a radiator, uh, shell. The hood was crumpled up. So that's when I first started working on cars. I, I, I don't even remember how the hell we got it home, but somebody helped me get it home and up in the backyard. And I pulled the, pulled all the fenders off of it, and popped the, took the rest, broken glass out, the windshield, and that's the one that kept breaking the intake manifold. It had a broken manifold then from the accident. But me and Fred put that car back, you know, we never put the fenders on. Yeah, there's plenty of cars running around without fenders. Hmm. So we just had it running. That was kind of like my first hot rod. It didn't have anything in the way of horsepower because it's just a stock 32. And this is, again, this is all, you're about what, 15? Yeah, about 15. So this I is wasn't old enough for a license, and when I turned 16, I got a license, and I kept that 32 for a little while. I know I was trying to speed shift, and someone said, "Well, your handle's too long. Cut that off. Make a six-inch handle." So I did that, but then I had a hard time shifting it. I reached down there to see and I couldn't see over the windshield. So anyway, I sold that for about what we paid for it. And 
How long do you think you had it? Oh, three or four months. Did you drive it to school and drive it around? And was it your transportation to? Yeah, somewhat. I got a picture of it in the house someplace. We were at. Uh, two of my friends were big on working out on the rings and and such. And there's a place not very far away, so I got a picture of it when we were over there without the fenders on. About the only picture I got of it, I'm sure. I probably had it for. I don't, you know, I just don't remember how long I had it because that time the big thing was Model A's. Model A's with V8 engines. So I got this Model A and took the, the fenders and didn't chop the windshield or anything. Just took the fenders and bumpers. And now what was this, a 29 Roadster? Uh, yes, it was. Well, I was still in junior high, I know, when I got the Model A. And Fred Carrillo lived just across the street from the pool hall. And so we, I'd go up there every night and play pool. Something kept happening to the Model A. And I couldn't figure out it. Oh, it was, it was burning points up, you know. Put new points in. I couldn't even do that. I had this guy in the pool hall that could do that. And he eventually showed me how to take the distributor out and put the new points in and how to index it so it was firing on number one as a, a little just a little pin that you pull out of the timing cover it unscrews and it has a rounded end on it and you put that in and turn the engine over slowly until it hit a little dimple in the fly in the uh, timing gear and that's when it was firing on number one so you then Put the um, distributor in with the rotor pointing towards the number one cylinder in the cap and rotate it until the points were just opening. And that was a big project for me to learn that. And then to learn how to advance and retard the ignition because you don't want to get it so close to that to, to advance and retard. On the Model A, you had a lever on the steering wheel to take care of maybe six, seven, eight degrees. Mm -hmm. It was off more than that. You had to lift the cap off, lift the rotor out, and a screw in the middle of the distributor shaft. And you unloosen that and turn the cam ever so slightly. In other words, you could take the cam clear out. Mm -hmm. you could, and that way you learn to advance and retire, and you'd learn what being advanced too was it would kick back and wouldn't start and being retired it wouldn't have any horsepower and all that kind of stuff and uh, I don't uh, think I even went to the lakes I hadn't been to the lakes then well this was well, this is still before the war before right? before the war and about that time I started trying to get rid of it of this hairy evasion because I didn't want to end up in jail again and I met another guy, uh, a friend of Fred Carrillo's name, Carol Axtell. And he became pretty famous for in motorcycles later, in later years, C.R. Axtell. And uh, he had a nice little garage right behind his parents' house. And he had just built, 
He just put a V8 in his Model A. And he showed me how to do it. And I bought a 32 crossmember from somebody. We took the engine out of my car and, and him and Fred and myself somehow got this engine put in and got the crossmember half ass welded in. And, uh, That's pretty impressive. I mean, you got to. You had to cut the thing up and yeah. size it down. Yeah, but Carol had, had done it on his car, so he was fairly familiar hmm. with it. Were you already kind of making it into a hot rod? Or had you pulled the fenders or anything? Yeah, or? yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, or dropped the axle? Or yeah, anything? the fenders were off of it. No, you know, we didn't, no one had dropped axles that I can remember in, those, in that time. Right after that, when I got this one, I didn't know anybody that made no one seemed to be making dropped axles. Uh, we made this one at a welding shop that I knew about. What, the one in? The one in the Roadster pickup. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Was that the first dropped axle you had in, in a car of yours? Yes. In that car, once we got that V8 engine in it, I got into some pretty good trouble with that. Just, we were always having, cops were really down on hot rods. Hot rods were a bad name. That's why when Wally started up the, the SCTA, or the, the National Hot Rod Association, they didn't even want to call it hot rods. Everybody hated that name that knew what they stood for. Yeah. They stood for bad things. They stood for having police chase us all the time. Hmm. That was no big thing because we could always outrun them. And I told you about the one I didn't outrun in West LA. Yeah. And uh, but there was there was one time there and one time in uh, Pasadena that I got caught. You know that they they had called ahead and had blocked the road and and stopped me in, taking me to jail in Pasadena. The one when I was going to Carl Orr's speed shop for the first time out in Culver City, that I had a cop on my tail in Beverly Hills, and turned into I turned into a dead end street. But I saw this garage open at the end of the street, and I pulled in there. A bunch of kids out in front playing, who knows what. The cop pulls up there on his motorcycle and looks around. You know, I was kind of peeking out of the window, and he pointed up to the garage. So he came up there and uh, looked in the window and saw the car in there. Yeah. I said, okay, open the, open the door. I said, well, I don't know if I can open the big door. He said, open the little door and just get the hell out of here. And he made no bones about it. He called in, had a, a police tow truck come and tow the car down the impound it in West L.A and take me in at the jail. Did all of, uh, all those things you just talked about, was that all in your first AV8 Roadster? Yes. So that was really the, that was really your first hot rod. Yes. That you really kind of did your first street racing and yes. gotten your, all your All the first and troubles. And yeah. All the yeah. All the crap was, yeah, that was it. 
I guess huh. I learned my lesson in that one. And uh, where'd you get the engine for that car? Do you remember? Did it just come from a junkyard, or did you did you re go through it at all? Did you put speed equipment on it? No. I didn't. Uh, I didn't. But I, no, I didn't have, have any speed equipment on it. And it was a pretty good engine, except every thousand miles or so, the clutch would start slipping bad. And if I had driven it hard for, not hard, but like 50, 60 miles an hour for 10, 15 miles, it shut it off. It'd be a column of oil coming out the uh, breather hole in the oil pan. Hmm. And you know, the guys would say, oh, it's just the rear main lake, and don't worry about it. It's just the rear main. And I didn't find out otherwise until some time later when I went back to Indianapolis in, in that car in 56 or 46. And I, I carried two extra clutches with me and a chain hoist because I knew it was going to happen. And uh, I finally found out. Uh, later that there's a, a drain tube that comes out of the rear main, screws in on, a, on those early engines, and it goes down and must be buried below the oil surface. And that's where the oil drains out. Mm -hmm. There's no pressure. If it's above the oil surface and you got blow-by, that pressure in the crankcase keeps it from coming out, and then it leaks by the rear main seal and into the bell housing and out. How much of the V? How much of the V8 swap did you do? Was that just you, Fred, and and uh, and uh, Carol Axtell? Yeah. And you, you, there must have been welding involved, and, and you had a gas motor. Now how the hell? I don't know if we bolted that cross member in. I know I did one a few months later for a guy. <clears throat> And just bolted the crossmember and drilled and used bolts to bolt it in. We probably did the same way with that one. Because all we had was a little gas welder. No one really knew how to weld. You did one a few months later for someone else? Just the crossmember. The guy was putting a V8 in and didn't know how to do the crossmember, you know, the position of it and such. Well, that's pretty interesting. It might have been your first customer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and I saw him, you know, through the years after that. Uh, don't remember his name or anything like that. But when I met Laura, we went on, you know, drives and necking stuff up in Griffith Park, and then I remember going, taking her down to the beach and driving like like crazy, you know. And, we went down that one on-ramp on the, on the coast highway. We must have been going 100 miles an hour. And uh, she still talks about that. And driving through the, all this traffic on the coast highway at ridiculous speeds. This is in the AV8? Yeah. Monster. Yeah. And, uh, and now, is this before the war? Did you meet her before the war? Or was it sometime during? It had to be, it had to be, well, it was when I was in high school, so I was in junior high, 38, 39, 40. I was in high school from 41, 42, probably 42, because I 
she might have still been in school. I just quit school. And uh, we had some good outings. And, uh, she'd go up to the dry lakes with me, and her father would absolute give her all kinds of hell. But yeah. she got by with it. We'd sleep, she'd sleep, or we'd both sleep under the car. And that's uh, where a lot of people just slept under the cars. Get up there midnight or so and sleep under the cars until daylight. And, uh, but that's mostly what you guys did as far as courting was you just kind of ran around in the car and went to the yeah, beach. Yeah, and we and never went to any fancy places. I took her, I think I ever took her any place other than a movie once in a while. Money was tight in those days. I mean, none of the kids had much money. Right, folks, there you have it. There you have it indeed. Part one of our series that we so look forward to bringing you on our old pal and hero, Tommy Sparks. What a great, great story. And uh, believe it or not, it's just going to get better. Um, special thanks to Tom for giving of his time and uh, sitting down with me those many years ago and sharing all this. And also, another personal thank you from me to Tom for being the first person to ever mention the American Hot Rod Foundation. Yes, Tom was the very first person to ever mention the foundation, and that was because, we are proud to say, the very first film interview that, that the foundation ever did was with Tom and Ray Brown. Uh, Henry Astor sat them down together and got their stories, which was great because they grew up together, they worked at Eddie Meyer's shop together, built their roadsters together, went to the lakes together, and um, man, there's just nothing like having two, those two guys in the same room. Um, and you can check out uh, excerpts of that on our website. Special thanks, as always, to Larry Babb and all our staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood. Our PR person is Angela Helton, and social media management comes to you from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan, and our theme song, as always, is brought to you by me. Uh, special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, always doing the heavy lifting, keeping us on track. The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Stephen Carroll Bumishian. Without their generosity and passion for preserving the history of hot rodding, none of this would be possible. So if you'd like to learn more, please check us out on our website, ahrf.com. You can support us by checking out our merchandise, picking a few items up for yourself, sign up for our uh, uh, mailing list, receive some updates, learn about what's going on at the foundation and about new episodes coming up of the Rodcast. And um, we can also be found, of course, on Instagram and Twitter. We have a great Facebook page that you should definitely subscribe to. Um, and once again, thank you for listening to the show and for supporting us and checking out this part one with our great old friend, Tommy Sparks. We look forward to seeing you next time.
Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.